Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Good day, everyone. Welcome to Fantasy NBA Today. It's Monday. A new week has begun. We are one day out, actually, from being a full month into the fantasy basketball offseason. Which I guess, where does that put us? Five months away from games? Less than that. Okay, it's less than that from really the the heavy lift part of the season. I think we start, I mean, obviously there are a few key shows right after free agency, but the run-up to the season really starts uh, about 45 days or so before the actual season begins. So that's like September 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, somewhere in that neck of the woods. I was looking at a week on the calendar, figure out which week actually rolls in with that one. Um, so we're actually, I, I would argue, maybe a little under four months from when the real ramp-up starts, and uh, it'll go fast, I hope. <laughs> it might not. I am Dan Baspers. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. Appreciate you guys sticking with us here during the fantasy basketball offseason. I know that it's not the same. I know that the grind of the fantasy season, we've all got our things we're working on and what have you. Uh, but I am grateful that you guys are still listening to the podcast, and uh, I hope that will continue through the offseason. Suppose we'll see. Suppose we'll see. Anyway, come along, won't you? Come along. Join us today as we recap some playoff basketball action from over the weekend, get you guys set up for a couple of games coming up tonight. Boston is in Milwaukee. Memphis is in Golden State, likely without John Morant. And uh, then we got a team to profile. I was hoping we could get another lesson learned in today. Um, I got to get on it. Yeah, that's on me. That's on me, everybody. I know, I'm wearing it. But anyway, uh, we'll we'll work our way through. I think we're on, we on our last Atlantic Division team. Can't remember if there's one or two of them left. <laughs> see, see how good I am at this? Let's see, we did the Knicks. First, then the Celtics, Nets, Raptors. Yeah, we're on our last Atlantic Division team. So you guys can do process of elimination at that point. And we'll get to that a little bit later on in the show. But first, over the weekend, remember we did a show on Thursday where we talked about the Friday games and the Saturday games. And we had no idea what might be happening on Sunday because, again, you, everything that happens in a playoff series, you're sort of reacting to a game that already happened. One that I mentioned as I thought was my favorite under of the Friday-Saturday card was Phoenix-Dallas Game 3. Because Phoenix was coming off that game where they shot like 65%, and even though the pace was actually really slow, the teams put up like 245 points. What was the actual number on that one? Was that Wednesday's game? 238? Even though the pace was at like 205 or something silly like that. And so when that total went up on Friday actually closed at the same number as the previous game. But it was higher, and then it came back down, probably because a bunch of folks clobbered the under at the last moment. And then the game, of course, ended at 197 before the game on Sunday went back to going over... Uh, excuse me, actually basically hit the number, I should say. It was very close. Final line was 214, final total was 212. When it's that close to the number, you just say that they got it right. I know it went under, but when it's that close, that means the line was right. That, that's that, that from a totals perspective, there's just that's not enough wiggle room. If you're betting a total based on thinking you had 
two points to work with, one possession in a 48-minute ball game? No, that's a coin flip. That's a coin flip. So now, this series moves back to Phoenix, and everybody seems to be fine for it, by all accounts, but that's tomorrow, so we'll get to that in due time. Uh, as far as other stuff that happened over the week, I, again, I don't want to spend too much time on that particular series because Phoenix-Dallas is tomorrow and Philly-Miami is tomorrow. Those teams played on Sunday. I was just talking about what happened over the weekend. The uh, So Phoenix-Dallas went under and then basically hit the number, but also did stay ever so slightly under. Miami-Philadelphia went way under on Friday because Miami put up 79 blistering points. Uh you knew they'd do better from a scoring perspective on Sunday, but Philly did as well. That game went over on Sunday. So that one went over and then over, un, uh, under and then over, excuse me. And uh, Phoenix-Dallas, I guess, technically went under twice, if you're going to be kind of a stickler about it. Boston-Milwaukee, just 204 in their game on Saturday. And you guys, I know, probably wish that I would talk about the side a little bit more. I just don't think sides in the playoffs are that reliable. I love the fact that you can create these total bubbles as you work your way through where it becomes artificially inflated by a couple of results, things that don't actually match up with what you saw on the floor, and you can work into those in some capacity. And then the Warriors and the Grizzlies, which I think my assessment on that Thursday show, if I'm remembering right, was, look, at some point this game is going to go under, but the pace was actually a lot higher than the final score. Was that a Wednesday game? No, that was Tuesday, and then they had a crap ton of time off. Memphis, remember, beat Golden State 106-101, went under the total by 20 points, but as you may have recalled from our discussion on Thursday's show, the pace of that series, you know, Warriors put up 101 points in a game where they had 95 shots and 18 turnovers, even if you don't worry about the free throw stuff, which we do because it does factor into possessions in some capacity. You're talking about 113 tries at the rim without free throws. More like 122, roughly, if you divide their 18 free throws in half. So that was a series that was actually played way faster than the total from that Tuesday game. And I said, look, I'm probably not going to bet an over because I hate betting overs. But assuredly, based on what we were seeing at that point, that series was way faster than the last score indicated. So the number came down a little bit. I think it closed at 225 and went flying over. 254 was the final score in that last ballgame. And now you have to look at that one as you kind of peel back the layers and work towards the card tonight. So let's do that right now. I mean, a little bit of a weekend recap there. Uh, Milwaukee leads Boston in their series two games to one. Warriors lead Memphis two games to one. Phoenix-Dallas tied at two. Philly-Miami tied at two. But we'll talk more about those two tomorrow. I want to start with Memphis Golden State because I think it's going to be a shorter handicap, mostly because Ja Moran is out. And with Ja out, it changes the way the game is going to be played. It changes the way everything is going, all of our expectations. Because it's not going to be like the regular season where Memphis was just like magically still good without Ja Morant because they came in this these waves of great players playing so hard and fast and forcing turnovers and creating havoc that... They didn't need the clutch ability of John Morant in those regular season games the way that they do in the playoffs. They need him. They need him. I know that he got hurt late, and it wasn't going to make much of a difference in Game 3, but he was also kind of the only guy who played well for Memphis in Game 3. 
You knew JJJ played pretty well first couple of ball games. You knew that was going to start to taper off a little bit because, you know, he's not a career like 55-60% shooter. Low 40s last couple of years because of his shot selection. And the Warriors were going to start to make a few. I don't think we saw this type of massive swing coming, but you knew it wasn't going to stick permanently the way it was. So I honestly don't know how you bet a Memphis Warriors game right now. Despite the fact that, and again, we see this sometimes where, you know, teams making shots does artificially depress the number of possessions in the ballgame. It does. Uh, but at the same time, Warriors out-rebounding the Grizzlies 38-29, allowed them a couple extra opportunities. Warriors were in the, like, 111-112 possession range. Memphis was more in the... Actually, I guess they were both relatively close. Yeah, both teams were around 111, 112. So 224, 225 possessions was what you were looking at there. And then, you know, even though the game slowed down a little bit, you saw better offensive execution. Um, and that led to a, a blistering over. This total is at 223 right now. It's come down a couple of points on the John Morant news, or it would have been higher, probably in the 226, 227 range. And I think you just have to leave it alone get into a lot of trouble betting into a game where you just sort of don't know how a team is going to react. Sure, they're going to play hard, but is the offense going to come? Are you going to see everybody else step up the way you would in a regular season game? It's less, it doesn't really work that way in the playoffs. Mavericks did it to Utah because, well, the Jazz are a little bit of a paper tiger, but Philly didn't have Joel Embiid and Miami exploited it. They beat him roundly. Embiid comes back. Miami gets better, or Philly gets better by a ton. It's a really interesting little footnote on something we refer to when we're talking betting as the injured star theory, but it actually applies even outside of betting circles, where during a long regular season, many of you have heard me discuss this before, when a team is missing a star player, briefly, this is a very important element, it can't be like somebody gets ruled out for four months because there's a different emotional reaction to that. There's a, oh no, we're screwed, but if it's like, oh, Superstar's out for a week, other guys can go, yeah, we can step up a little bit here in the short term. We can fill that gap by covering the fact that historically players go at about 80% during the regular season. But when their Superstar's out, they're like, we probably should go closer to 100 for a night or two. Unless we want to get smoked. And it works because the other team is probably still going at 80%. So that extra effort from the team missing their superstar tends to cover that gap a little bit. And it's hard to quantify this. I'm just throwing some numbers on the board. In the playoffs, everybody's going at 100%. So if you miss a key player, it's not like your other guys can just give more the way they could during a regular season game. It's not available. You're dipping into the beyond reserves and someone's going to get hurt, or, in or more likely the scenario, the team's just not going to be as good. So let's focus our efforts a bit more on the other game tonight, which doesn't have a key player likely to miss the ball game, and that's Milwaukee and Boston, which, and everybody's talking about whether or not there was a particular foul that should have happened in the end of the last ball game. I don't actually care about that kind of stuff. Right now we're sitting on the Bucks by a point and a half. Total is hovering around two between 2.11 and 2.13, seemingly, and it's hard to lock it into place, but we'll basically just say that's where it is. And that was pretty close to where the last one was. 
closed at 211.5, went under at 204, which is, I'll call it smedium in terms of how much wiggle room you have there. But it is worth noting that the last ball game featured some truly horrific offensive play. The previous game, which Boston beat Milwaukee 109-86, also featured some pretty awful offensive play, but it was a game where Boston was better able to slow down the basketball game. Yes, the teams didn't score, but a lot of that was because Boston sort of imposed their tempo on it. Their offensive players had good shooting nights. They slowed Milwaukee down. Bucks only had about 100 possessions in that game, 100, 101. That's very much in the Boston neighborhood. Celtics, I think, only had like 98 possessions in that game, which is hard to decipher given the way the other stuff worked itself out. I think Milwaukee had a few offensive rebounds and things like that. But so when you look at that ball game, it ended at a buck 95. And the total was at 216. You're like, okay, well, like, did we miss our opportunity here, or is this series slowing down? Our thought on the Thursday show, when we profiled all the playoff games happening over the weekend, was as the series goes to Milwaukee, Giannis is going to try to speed things up a little bit. And Lord knows he did. The Bucks took 99 shots in that game on Saturday. So now we have this weird little pocket where the total of 211.5 was there, and the game went under at 204, but not for lack of trying. Because Boston alone, 87 shots, 12 turnovers, that's 99 right there, and 34 free throws. So we're talking around 116 opportunities. Milwaukee, 99 shots, 10 turnovers, only 17 free throws, so that didn't power boost it quite the same way, but you're still talking about 117 Somewhere in that neck of the woods. So this game, like, if you were just saying one point per opportunity in this one, it should have been up around 233. Can Milwaukee speed the game up again? I, don't, I know that they barely hung on and they barely won it. And a lot of folks on the Boston side are like, well, look, Jason Tatum was terrible and we still only won this ballgame. Yes, that's true. But you got way more out of Al Horford on offense than you could have ever expected. Jalen Brown was excellent, and you got 34 free throws. So these things have a way of canceling each other out. Giannis was very good. Drew Holiday took 30 shots, but wasn't very good on the offensive side. Neither team could shoot. Boston got more free throws, so they were able to kind of hang in it that way. And the Bucks had more chances. Fewer turnovers, more rebounds, all that stuff. By a little bit. Not by a lot, only by a little bit. So then you look at this ball game and you're like, okay, well, the last one was at 204 and the total was 211 on that game. Why is the total for this ball game actually ever so slightly higher? 212 and a half? You know, why is this number bigger than the last one, even though the last game went under the mark? I'll tell you. It's because everybody saw the pace, the opportunity that presented itself in that last ball game. And I hate to bet over. So you know I'm not jumping on it, but the pace of that last ball game in Milwaukee absolutely pointed towards a game that should with any kind of offensive ability gone a little bit over. So what do we do? We leave it alone. Because if the numbers point to an over and a playoff game where they just keep getting slower and and dirtier and sloggier and dustier, we probably just leave it alone. 
I'd love to tell you hammer the over on Boston-Milwaukee, but you know I've never said the words hammer the over in a playoff game ever, I don't think, and I don't plan on starting today. But I'm not betting the under on it, that's for damn sure. Because the speed of that last ball game, a little bit of offense, yeesh. Sort of, you know, the interesting thing about that last game, too, is that Giannis, 42 points, people might look at that and think, man, he was good on offense. Everything was working, but like no one else on the whole team could get anything to go down. They shot 40%, Boston shot 37 I don't care how good they are defensively. I mean, the teams are going to be a little bit better than that, typically. Going to be good defense in this series, but that was crazy. Philadelphia 76ers, your team du jour, and this one's not too hard, although there are a couple of things hanging in the balance, and one big one in particular, but just worth noting here right out of the chute, what we're doing on these team profiles is basically assessing what a team looked like this past season, and then what do we think might happen? But I'm not going to go through every permutation of who might be on and off the roster next year. As far as what happened this season, Philly obviously ended the season in a different... They looked different when they ended than when they started. James Harden was there at the end. He wasn't there at the beginning, and he wasn't as good in Philadelphia. Harden finished this year... Well, make sure I got my timeline right on this stuff. So we don't give you the wrong numbers. That would be a very large embarrassment. James Harden finished right around the end of the first round. He was a turn player, played in 65 out of their 82 games between his two ball clubs. Joel Embiid was a massive success, played in 68 out of 82 games. That's a big win for him. That put him basically right around league average, a number of games missed, and then all of his other stuff was terrific. The uh, big stories, Tobias Harris continued his very predictably decent production. You know I love me, Tobias. He was also relatively durable, 73 out of 82 games. That's more... uh, then the league average, so he finished at 43 by totals. Tyrese Maxey, 75 games this year. Number 35 by totals after a top 60 per game season. So actually a lot of really interesting fantasy value. And even Matisse Thybul finished at number 86 on a per game basis, despite having what you'd call a pretty weird fantasy stat set. And I know you're like, Dan, this is the kind of guy you usually like. Yeah... Yeah, but I actually think that there are other ways to get your steals and blocks, particularly steals. I know he's sort of he was bordering on elite in that category, 1.7 steals a game. But he's actually so awful in the non-defensive categories that it, in my mind, he's kind of where I draw the line, where his value is a bit artificially inflated. There, there are guys that good, good defensive stats. You know, the, guys like Rob Covington, who you know I've loved for a long, long time, but at least he gets you like eight points a game and one and a half three-pointers or whatever. Like there's some at four and a half, five rebounds, stuff like that. There's some impact outside of just steals and blocks. And for Thibault, that's really all he did. And he, he's being a bit exposed here in the playoffs as well as not having any offensive game. Things things have clamped down, whether it's nerves, whatever, and then I you know, teams are gonna take care of the better, better care of the basketball. He's losing playing time, not a ton of it, but some, to, you know, veterans like Danny Green. I've only played fifteen minutes in that last one. Danny Green twenty four, George Nang twenty one. They need guys that can spread the floor a little bit. And as much as Danny Green takes heat 
he somehow ends up, he's just on winning teams all the time. Well, what does it mean going forward? For one, uh, Tyrese Maxey is probably going to get a tiny bit overdrafted next year. He had a fantastic season. I don't know how he gets better or does more unless James Harden doesn't exercise his player option for $47 million. But I don't know why he would do that because we've seen James Harden lately and he's not going to get that type of massive extension in Philly, I don't think. I guess he could go free agent and then try to re-sign in Philadelphia. That, to me, feels like the only thing that ends up happening there, if anything at all. The Sixers are likely littered with players set to be overdrafted. If I thought Joel Embiid was overdrafted before, Embiid, after a hugely successful season, is a very dangerous overdraft prospect. And look, I'm willing to admit it. He was a guy I avoided on draft night because of the fear of injury, and he basically survived. He played a league average number of games, which on that particular point is a huge win for Joel Embiid because we figured he would miss at least five, maybe even more like 10 games more than the league average player. So if you were spending a mid-first round pick on him, there was almost no way he was going to be inside the top 12. Despite the really great per-game production, it was going to be like what Kevin Durant ended up being this year. But he didn't. He made it, and so his per-game translated to his totals value. And now next year, everybody's going to look at Joel and go, well, he was number three per game. He was number three by totals. I think he was even number two in some spots, depending on how the rank board was going. Poop, you know, I'll take him inside the top five. That's how I didn't swear on a podcast, by the way. Probably should have said crap. Whatever. You know, I live with kids. What are you going to do? And I still don't think I can do it. I know we've now kind of seen it, and maybe he does it again, but I also now, like, once a guy does it once, is there as large of an impetus for him to do it again? To be this healthy? Maybe he just coasts into about 68 games again next year, in which case, if you took him at number five, he probably ends up being a very small value at that spot. I just can't do it. I can't do it. I can't take that risk. If it worked, you got a really nice play. And a lot of the teams that won this year that didn't have Nikola Jokic did have Joel Embiid. But they sure as, you know what, weren't the only ones. Cat teams tended to do really well this year. Tatum teams were pretty good. Steph teams, unless you were head-to-head and he missed the last week of your playoffs. Even Giannis, who I avoid because of his free throw percent, he was up there by totals at number eight, 14 by averages. Those guys that worked their way up to the top of the board in totals that also went in the first round, those guys were winning plays too. Just so happened a lot of guys got hurt this year. So the fact that Embiid didn't have a big injury, well, changed the complexion a lot. I am unsure of where James Harden is going to get drafted next year. My guess is that he falls into that just outside the top bucket group of like, Going in there, I don't know who it's going to be. I mean, we know Jokic is going to be at the very, very top. Cat's going to be up at the top. Steph probably ends up near the top, I would think. Maybe not. He was number six by averages. Does LeBron shoot back into the top six? Is KD in the top five or six? Maybe we only know that it's Jokic, Cat, and maybe Embiid. Maybe, like, maybe we have the top three locked in. Regardless, we always have like a top few that everybody mostly agrees on. And then there's this big bunch-up 
between like four and ten or five and ten. My guess is that Harden probably falls into that group next year and maybe even towards the back end of it. Like if it's the bunch between five and ten, he's probably more in the like nine or ten category. And at that point, yeah, he probably would be fine there. I would expect him to play in pretty close to a league average number of games next season. So if you get him at 9 or 10, he probably ends up, my guess is, probably near 9 or 10. I don't really know where Maxie's going to go, but from a what-is-he-going-to-do standpoint, probably pretty similar stuff. He's good. He's young. I don't see any reason why he should take a step backwards. And then you got Tobias Harris, who... I, I hate all of you guys, by the way. Just throw that out there. I hate you all because... Every time I'm in a league with someone who listens to the podcast, they grab Tobias Harris at pick number, like, 49 before I can grab him at pick 53 or whatever it turns out to be. It happens every damn year without fail. And without fail, it works because he has a per-game value near 50, usually, and he tends to play in more games than the league average number of, uh, league average basketball player, which he did again this year. And so even though he didn't even hit his per-game mark, he still beat it by a bunch, by totals, at number 43. He will most likely be a value again next year. Took him time, a lot of time actually, to figure out how to play alongside James Harden. You're seeing him actually play much better here during the playoffs. My guess is that Tobias Harris gets drafted in the late 60s or 70 range next year, and for sure I'll take a shot on him there. He might be a top 75 per game guy with James Harden on that team, but you know what? If you take him at like 65 or 70 and his per game value is right behind that, but he plays in 73 to 75 games again, he's a winner again. We've talked about it before. Once you get back towards like 90, 100, 115, that range, durability becomes sort of a a false win, especially in Roto Leagues. It's not really a win. But somebody who's like 65, 70, that's quite durable, that's a win. That's still a win. You want your sixth round pick or whatever we're talking about here. You want that guy to play in basketball games. If y'all are going to try to sell me on rookies, Evan Mobley is a really nice example of this, of a rookie who played in a lot of ball games. He missed a few in there, but he was in that 65 to 75 range. Relatively durable. I guess he only played in 69 games, so not quite as great as as I thought off the top of my head. Scotty Barnes, another great example, 66, but he played in 74 ball games. That's a big deal. Jordan Poole, 64, but played in 76 ball games. Once you get down a little farther along the board, again, probably outside the top 90, then you start to think, okay, well, you know, Dorian Finney-Smith, he was super durable this year. He did finish in the 90s, by the way, amazingly. He played in 80 ball games, and that's cool for head-to-head. That's great for head-to-head, because you never ever think about it. He's just there every ball game. Roto, mm, do I really want 80 games out of a top 100 player? I think I'd probably rather shoot for someone a little more brittle in the, you know, 75 to 85 range, whatever. But you give me someone in the 65 to 75 range who plays, that's big. Those are games well spent. Those guys are slightly positive impact guys. They're moving the ball, they're moving the boulder forward. 
Now, again, we don't really know everything that's going to go on with Philly in the offseason, same as the way we've talked about on all of these other teams. But if you're going to put names down on a board of guys that I think you could possibly target this next year, I would say if Harden falls down near the turn, he's targetable. If Tobias Harris is going in the 60s or later, he becomes a target again, which I think he will because he wasn't a top 60 guy after Harden got there. It was a big adjustment period for him. Joel Embiid is probably going to go a little too early. And then Tyrese Maxey, I really don't know. But basically the only players coming off the books for Philly this year are non-impact guys. So you kind of don't have to worry about it at all. Easy peasy. Just a few names to put on your board. I love it. Friends, check out our buddies over at Fantasy MLB Today and Fantasy NFL Today, as well as the Fantasy Pass, because the very hardworking fantasy sports writers at Sports Ethos are putting together season and review package ideas as well. We do some lessons learned here on the show. Theirs are a bit more in-depth and clever than ours. And NBA draft content already coming out at Sports Ethos. You want to figure out what rookie you should be taking? You kind of need to know early. Start the deep dive. There's no off-season at Sports Ethos, only the pre-draft season, which is actually what it is for both football and basketball right now. Check that out at Ethos Fantasy BK, Ethos Fantasy BB, Ethos Fantasy FB are the three sports feeds we have right now. One of them, obviously, quite a bit older and more built out than the others. Ladies and gentlemen, Have a wonderful Monday. Back at you tomorrow. Will we have a team? Will we have a lesson? Will we have something else entirely? I don't know because I just finished this one. Jeez, what do you guys want from me? Have a great day. We'll talk to you tomorrow.